It's likely that not many, perhaps none of you, have heard the name John Carter, at least not the John Carter who lives in Shropshire, England. He wrote in a book about his, his experience with the power of, of renewal that comes from being forgiven. By his own testimony, he was a kid that by 14 had uh, a rap sheet. He was into robbery, theft, that gave way to violent crime. So by the age of 22, he was sentenced to eight years in a prison. But he wasn't going to let that stop him. Rather than have any kind of corrective impact on his life, he essentially pressed into that place of his heart that was full of violence, full of anger. He escapes twice. That tacks on more years to his sentence. And it's just not working. But he said, at that point, I'm at the lowest part of my life that I've ever experienced. They end up sending him to a different prison that actually had a different philosophy. Rather than just put him in solitary or make life harder and harder, they, they had more of a therapeutic approach, which meant talking about crime and victims and understanding what real justice would be in those circumstances. Gradually, he found a different way to perceive what he had been doing and the impact that it had had on people that he had hurt. It got to a point where the prison officials asked if he would be willing to connect with somebody that he had hurt in the course of one of his crimes. And he said he would. And so in due course, a young woman that he had injured, sort of tangentially, he was in a bar fight, and then she got hurt sort of off to the side. Uh, she wasn't the target, but she was nevertheless very much the victim. And as a result of that, her life was changed, and she wanted, she agreed to this meeting. And so by his own account, he writes, he's sitting at the table, and she comes in, and she, he said she, was, she just had rage on her face. She was with her parents. Her father had his fists clenched. Her mother looked distraught. And they come, and they sit at the table. He noticed she has a six-inch scar from the wound that he had caused on her face. So it's all understandable in terms of what they're experiencing. This is his first opportunity to confront any of the people that he had hurt, any of the victims. And so he breaks the ice with his comments that just says, at that time, this is what I was feeling. And I am sorry and, and I am remorseful. She then expresses what it meant for her to be injured so severely, and how her life had not been the same from, from that day till then. Moved by that, he says, and I'll read from his, his story, finally I told her, in fact, how remorseful I felt, and then after a brief, a brief pause, she said, I forgive you. I hadn't asked for this, and certainly didn't expect it, but those words had a profound effect on me. They gave me the resolve not to steal nor to commit violence against another person ever again. This meeting completely restructured my whole life. Sometime after that, he was released. He made a life, had a family, 
working as a gardener, has never gone back. And he continues to refer to that meeting with that young woman who he had hurt as the turning point. It's an illustration of the power of forgiveness to change a life, the power of forgiveness to restore somebody's life, to give them the vision for a life that they hadn't had and probably obviously then can't remember, and to be something different than what they were, to even begin to think and dream that they could be something different. And this is the power when one person forgives another person. But in the text that Cindy read, in our gospel text of, called about the prodigal son, we see the power of, of forgiveness and repentance leading to restoration. When you think about just what was read and where the details of this parable are, they are about the restoration of the younger son. And we can get to the older son in a little bit, but most of our time is going to be on the younger son, the younger brother, the one who is restored. I'm going to read, reread verses 11 to 16. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the gospel son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything there, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. That's sort of a, almost an innocuous statement. But it had immense power to the hearers of this parable. In Mediterranean culture, and Kenneth Bailey, one of the commentators on this passage, speaks to it, to, to say, give me my inheritance, was to say to the father, I wish you were dead. Because an inheritance was only something that somebody received once the parent who had the wealth passed away. And it was unheard of to actually make that request. It is to say, I wish you were dead. Have you ever wished somebody was dead? I mean, it's Lent, so let's be honest a little bit. You know, perhaps in a moment of anger, you thought, I, I don't even want to say it, but I'm thinking it. I, I, I wish that, you know, you weren't here. I wish you were dead. That might be in a moment of anger, but sometimes some of us or people that you know have been in prolonged living situations and conditions of difficulty, of hardship, of abuse, of always being kind of put down in one way or another. And it's, in a sense, understandable to think when you're on the receiving end of that, from time to time, the tempter comes and says, man, I wish you were dead. I wish you weren't in my life. There's a lot of reasons we might think this. In our culture, maybe this is the stuff of Agatha Christie novels, but you know, some wealthy relative is 115 years old and shows no signs of flagging. And you might think, Man, if they were only gone, we could have all this money. We could have all the stuff that we've been pining to have. I wish you were dead. This is what the young man is saying to his father. But his father in the parable liquidates whatever assets he needs, gives the young man what he wants, and the young man goes off to, it says, a distant country. 
where he lives the life that he wants to live. I've got my money. I'm going to make up for lost time. I'm done with this one-horse town. I am so out of here. No more farming. No more raising livestock. No more schlepping for dad and working with my older brother. No more being a good boy. I just want to do what I want to do. And off he goes. The great plan doesn't last very long. It lasts about as long as the money that he has. But as the parable tells us, pretty soon he's out of money. And maybe he's bumming a few bucks or denarii off of his friends until the famine comes, and now nobody's got denarii. And he has to go figure out what he's going to do. And so he hires himself out to somebody to be a farmhand, to be a servant. And in that time and in that place, he's actually he's now put in charge of feeding pigs, an unclean animal to the way he was raised, something way below his dignity. It's bad enough that he was once an heir, now he's a servant. It's even worse that who he's serving are unclean animals. It's at this point that he finally turns around. It's at this point that this, the scripture says he comes to his senses. And then he returns, to his, he returns to his home country. He's rehearsed a speech. He's like, I'm not worthy. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please make me one of your hired hands. And he comes back and our text tells us that he says that to his father. And what's curious about the text is his father doesn't respond to his request. If you look at it closely, the father instead starts issuing commands to the servants. Father says, go, quick, get the robe, put it on him. Another one of you, go get the ring, put it on his finger. Look at those bare feet. They've been walking for miles and days and weeks. Put on some sandals. In that illustration, Jesus is saying, more, you know, he's, he's been more than forgiven. Jesus talks about the joy of, of being forgiven, of finally coming to the Lord in, in a host of other parables. In fact, the two even that, that precede this in, in Luke 15 are about that. He talks about the fact that when one person comes to the Lord, there's more rejoicing in heaven than 99 that are already with the Lord. It's like, great. He loves it when people come break through all the stuff in this world, break through their own ideas of what the good life is, break through their personal narrative about how they should be living here, etc. They break through that, and they come to the Lord. So there's rejoicing in heaven, but this text is focused, not, not no, there's rejoicing, because they're about to celebrate, they're killing the fattened calf, but there's more than that, there's actually restoration. So this parable is very much about restoration. Restoration that comes through repentance. Restoration that comes through forgiveness. But it's not, you know, the father doesn't receive him with this begrudging like, oh, about time. Thought you would have been here about a year or two ago. Heard what had happened in that faraway country. Now you're coming. Tail between your legs. Told you it wouldn't work out. None of that. We know the father's been looking for him. Looking on the horizon. And he sees him and he runs to him. This is the father's love. The running to him is the start of the restoration. And so now you have somebody, you know, he comes and he, you can imagine what he looks like when he arrives. And, he, and the father's restoration takes him from rags to a robe. It takes him from a, a lost dignity 
to back to his sonship. It takes him from this status as a barefooted beggar to one who has sandals befitting of an heir. When we come to the Lord, he restores us. He is restoring his son relationally. He's restoring him to a place where the son realizes that what he had left, he'd left a place where he had been loved and was still loved, where he had been secure, where he had the worth and the dignity that went with the son. And all these things are contributing to a life that actually is pretty good. It's flourishing. But he goes away and he goes to his distant country. And he realizes it doesn't hold up to the promise. I think as I was in this parable, you know, the question occurred to me, what distant country am I in? What distant country might you be in? Is there some you know, vision for your life that is actually different from God's? That actually constitutes a different country. Some sense of ourselves, our body, or our worth that's not found in the Word of God? We can have pursuits, we can have images, we can have narratives if they're not steeped and sourced in the life of God through his son Jesus Christ, if they don't have the weight of scripture that's behind them, if they don't have the community that affirms and confirms, and that's a distant country. Now, distant countries can be a little on the mundane side. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, which you haven't read it, is a marvelous uh, devotional on this. He's taking Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son and he's mixing it with the text and his own reflections. It's, it's a wonderful, powerful devotional. He says that sometimes the distant country for him is any time that, that the expectations that people have put on us through the course of our life are the ones that we continue to gravitate to. Here's, here's a quote from him. He says, they'll say to us, they'll say to me, show me that you're a good boy, that you'd better, you had better that you are better than your friends. How are your grades? Be sure that you can make it through whatever you're experiencing. What are your connections? Are you sure that you want to be friends with those people? Don't show your weakness. You'll be used. And he goes on. When I forgot that voice of the unconditional love from God, then these innocent suggestions and at times well-meaning can easily start dominating my life and they pull me into a distant country. The other uh, voice that I was thinking about even this morning was from Thomas McKenzie. Some of you who are in the small group were reading Lent with the Desert Fathers, and he talks about uh, the idea of shame. That is, can be a distant country. Anger, shame, any number of things that, that come from the ways that we were shaped or raised. When we didn't have a say, we just had to experience it. And we experienced it in, in, as young children, and we just couldn't make sense of it. What, what sense can the mind of a child make of such things? But that idea of shame that Mackenzie explains is the sense that there's something wrong with me as a person, not something that I've done wrong, which can be forgiven. And in those places, the distant country becomes always trying to prove over and over again one's worth. It's a distant country because it's devoid of God. There's not Jesus in that. There's no loving Father He's not with us. He's on the horizon looking for us to come back. So it can be any number of things. But in this Lent, I would want us, and, and there's an agenda for me too, to, to look into this and say, Lord, 
help me to understand the country that I need to continue to come from towards you, that I might be confessing of that and be restored to that relationship because it's out of that relationship that the good things that God has purposed for us, that sense of worth, that sense of security, that sense of his presence comes to our life. The Lord is, in fact, a lavish restorer for each of us. So what to do? Emulate the younger brother. Hurry home. Confess. Ask forgiveness. And when you get that, when, you know, it's, it's easy for us to do that. It's like, Lord, oh, hopefully it's easier. gets easier. It's easier to confess. It's easier to ask forgiveness. Here's the hard part. To actually receive it. To just say to the Lord, okay, there's nothing I can do. There's no bargain I can make. You know, I'm just going to be your servant now. I'm going to work just, just I'm going to work this off. That's basically what the younger brother wants to do. He wants to work it off. I'm in a timeout. i got to put my head in the corner for two hours, and then I'm done. There's no working it out. This is the lavish love and the lavish restoration of the Lord. And so we, we thank him for that. Emulate him. Hurry home. Receive what the Lord has. God is the responder. He won't hold our sins against us. But the challenge with hurrying home from from a place in a far-off country, is sometimes there's just consequences and stuff that we still need to deal with. But dealing with those, the safest place we can do that is in the presence of the love of God, is in that place of restoration that he brings us, to reclaim once again our sonship, our dignity, our purpose, our worth. These are things that, honestly, only he can bring. He can only bring the ones that are truly meaningful, and not only for this life, but for the next and so we, like, we want to hurry home. We need to beware of being the older brother, who in this story, if you remember it, uh, he's, let's just say it, he's flat out outraged at the lavish love of his father towards his brother. He says, I'll paraphrase, you are throwing a party for this insolent, money-grubbing, fortune-losing sinner who you know, you're restoring, and he doesn't deserve it. And if that isn't bad enough, what do I get for being faithful and diligent and uh, slaving away? I mean, he kind of lays it on a little thick. He's slaving away. What's, what, why is Jesus talking about the older brother in this? Because there's times we are the older brother. There's times where we say to the Lord, um, as we look around at other people, like, Lord, how are you blessing them? They had such a messed up, jacked up life, and now they have all kinds of fruit or all kinds of blessings. I've been faithfully serving you, and I just have more challenge, more misery, more issues. I, I don't know, maybe it's just me that sort of felt that from time to time. You know, you get with a bunch of ministers, a bunch of church planners, it's not uncommon for the enemy to go. Those guys are doing pretty well. You know, that guy just got out of jail, and he's got like 200 guys at his church. You're like, okay, hmm. A slight exaggeration. But we can do that professionally. We can do that spiritually. We can do that on our family members. There's just something very human about a comparison that is in us. And the older brother, he has a just issue, does he not? It's like, this is, I don't understand this, Dad, would be a nice way to say it. But what does his father say to him? 
And what does he say to us that we need to hear? Because the Father is the same in each of these situations. He's the same loving dad that loves his younger son and has been looking for him to come back from the distant country, that he'd be once again restored through confession and through forgiveness. And he wants his older son to know that this is the dad who loves lavishly, who restores. In the older son's case, there's not much to restore because he says this. Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. You're always with me, and everything I have is yours. To experience the lavishness of the Lord, is to, is, it comes through his presence. To want to be in a place of restoration is to run back to his presence and to realize that when we do that, he is once again always with us, or more correctly, we are always with him. And that what we thought we were missing by going here and going there, go to whatever distant countries we have, is actually everything that we have and everything that we need is with him. And so I just pray that in this Lenten time, it's the fourth week, there's not that many weeks left. I have to say, this is probably the first time I've, I've wanted to postpone the end of Lent. I mean, usually like Lent, okay, that's hard, can't wait to stop giving up food, uh, those kinds of things. But I, I, I just sense God has a lot more work to do, and it's, it's kind of, uh, it's a little bit crunch time. Feels like sort of a Lenten finals week in places. But that's where I want to be because I know that's where he is for me. But I think that's true for all of us. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the Sermon Podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.